It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. So we've come to find out through observing how people respond to this podcast that the most popular topics on the show are relationships. It's when we talk about relationships in episodes or title our episodes about relationships. Our most popular episode thus far is with Jason Green, who came on to talk about attachment styles. And now his second episode, he was he's the only guest that's come on our show twice. And his second episode is now about to cross to or basically take over for spot number two. So Jason Green is dominating with attachment styles. And I bring this up because over the weekend, I was reading about attachment styles and I found this interesting article that I thought we could discuss. It's It fascinated me. It's some things that I hadn't really thought about. And attachment styles are really fascinating. If this is your first episode or you ha- happen to have not listened to our previous episodes about attachments, it's basically this theory that each of us have different styles in which we relate to one another. And they're typically, I think, three different attachment styles. Again, don't I'm not an expert in this. Jason Green has become a bit of an expert and his episodes are really worth listening to. But uh, the main attachment styles are avoidant, anxious, and secure. And Jason talked about how the secure people tend to have some kind of easier times dating and being in relationships and anxious and avoidant people tend to date each other and that can cause some challenges. And Jason Robel discovered that he's avoidant and I discovered that I'm anxious and we actually dated many years ago. So I guess it makes sense that we were drawn to one another. The other cool thing I will say before we dive into this is through my reading, I was reminded that your attachment styles can actually change over time. So I have found myself becoming more secure, which is great. (laughs) And uh, that's something that I've been doing a lot of work on in my personal life in general, because anxiety is something that I face. I think a lot of people face this. Jason does as well, even though he's technically an avoidant. So having anxiety in itself or feeling anxious doesn't necessarily mean that your attachment style is anxious. But anyways, I found this great article that I will link to in the show notes. If you haven't visited our website yet, it's wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And in addition to a bunch of free resources that we offer, we have the podcast section where you can go and see the transcripts and get all the resources that we mention throughout our episodes. And this one that I'm going to put in there is called The Elusive Person. When you love someone with a dismissive avoidant attachment style. And it's a really lovely read. It's it's really interesting. And the author is talking about elusive individuals, meaning you can't seem to just have them. 
they are somewhat there acting like you're in a relationship with them. But when you step back and think about the reality of the situation, you realize that they are actually quite emotionally disconnected from you. And this is really fascinating. I think part of what fascinates me about this is A, because I'm anxious, I've, I've tended to feel, feel drawn to or attracted avoidant people. So I'm always interested in reading about this. But B, I think that this applies to not just our romantic relationships. This can happen in, in so many different facets of our lives. And I think a topic that comes up a lot for us on the show is just the way that we interact with each other, we communicate with each other, the way we treat each other. And so I felt like we could explore this idea of, of what it means to be elusive in a lot of different ways and, and the type of behaviors that elusive people typically practice. It's interesting because what comes up for me is the phrase, one foot out the door, Whitney. You've heard that mm -hmm. phrase before? Oh, yeah. At least one guy for sure. Like when, I, when you say that, I like think about one relationship in particular that felt very one foot out the door. I feel like I've been that guy a lot. Well, I mean, this is this is really like this makes sense, right? Because you're anxious, you're an avoidant, and I'm anxious, and so I wouldn't say that when you and I were dating that I perceived you that way. But I guess now that you're admitting it, I could certainly see you acting that way in other relationships. Did you feel like you were like that with me when we were dating? There were times I did. To be honest, if I'm really looking at my entire dating history, which is at this point, it's pretty long. I'm getting into my mid forties and I've, I've dated a number of wonderful women. I think I've had to look at for me in terms of this avoidant behavior and this elusiveness that you're alluding to. It's been kind of this subconscious belief system that committed or being overly committed to something is going to end in disaster. It's almost like on some subconscious level as a child, I looked at the committed relationships of adults in my family. None of them were really happy. None of them were really content. None of them really felt in love to me. My own parents were never married. And so I think on some subconscious level, now it's conscious, but for many years, that elusiveness or that avoidant behavior, I think was like, ah, don't get too close. Don't get too deep in it. Because if you get too deep in it, it's going to go really, really badly. And that was just a strange observational belief system I had somehow adopted through childhood. You have somewhat of a different, I suppose, imprinting Whitney because of we've talked about our parents and you know their relationships in previous episodes. But I think for me, the fact that my parents were not together very long after I was born and they were never married and my dad had some addiction and abuse issues. You know, I, I don't know. On some level, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've I've had to really work on my tendency to be like, eh, I'm always got one. The escape hatch button is always in view. You know what I mean? Like, okay, at any moment I can, I can hit that escape hatch and I'm out of here. But really examining why I have felt that way. It's not something where I felt that consistently throughout a relationship. But I suppose what I'm getting at is there are times in every romantic relationship where I have felt like hitting the eject button. I've certainly experienced that myself. I don't think it's that feeling is specifically related to your attachment style in some cases. I think that each of us, no matter what our attachment styles, can be fearful and have those commitment issues. And it's really interesting when you examine this. And this is, I think, one of the reasons these episodes have been so popular on our show is because 
attachment styles are really enlightening. And I think I mentioned during at least one of Jason Green's episodes that learning about attachment styles was just as enlightening for me as when I first read about the five love languages. And having that information about people has been really, really helpful. And it's no wonder Jason Green has has been having a lot of success since he dug into this. And if you listen to his episodes, he talks about how he even built this passion. It was really that it, it made such a big difference, a big impact on his life. And it's now becoming a huge part of his career. I feel like because I'm anxious, like reading about avoidance is really enlightening. And when I first learned about this type of attachment style, it was like a huge relief for me because part of what the anxious attachment style experiences is a lot of that not good enough and always feeling like you're walking on eggshells and that you can mess things up at any time. And there's a lot of fears of abandonment and you know, I know you, Jason, have struggled with abandonment as well. And I think that the attachment styles are not cut and dry. Like just because you're fall into the avoidant category doesn't mean that you don't have some anxious tendencies, right? But you do tend to have a lot of classic tendencies of your styles and that and just identifying those within yourself and in other people can be really helpful. And knowing what your partner is or or knowing about the person that you're dating or the people that you have dated can be super fascinating. One way that avoidance tend to operate is that they seem like they're constantly playing a game of hide and seek. (laughs) (laughs) And that can leave their partners to Mm. feel empty and confused, constantly feeling off guard, off their foundation, unstable. And the relationship keeps them wanting more. And that's something I've experienced a ton in relationships. So reading that, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've been with a lot of men that are, are like that and operate that way. And I think part of this that's really helpful is thinking like, oh, this isn't just about me and my experience. This is about the people that I'm attracted to and the, these categories. And it starts to make you feel like you're not alone. And it's not like something that you're doing that's wrong. I mean, certainly you can take responsibility for how you show up in relationships, but knowing that these things can be a little bit more, well, for lack of a better word, universal to these different types of styles, I think is really helpful. One thing that I guess I'm ruminating on as you're describing this, Whitney, is is how I've perceived certain women that I've dated, not all, but some uh, as being, for lack of a better word, needy. Mm-hmm. And I've yep. had conversations with women about their desire to spend a certain amount of time with me or a certain quality of time with me. And there are times between my artistic endeavors, running my own brand, running this brand and this podcast with you that sometimes I'm like, I'm giving you all the time I have and you want more. And I end up getting frustrated and I end up getting annoyed because I'm like, you keep asking for more and more and more, but I'm giving you all I can give you. And it's been a point of contention for me with specific women who wanted more from me. I start to feel overwhelmed and smothered. And then I start to push away because I want my freedom. And I've noticed that's been a pattern with certain people. Yep. And avoidant attachment styles tend to be extremely independent and self-sufficient and often will hold a belief that they're meant to be alone because of these things. Bingo. Yes, 100%. I felt that for a long time. One thing I find interesting is that 
I'm curious if you've had this experience or I'm if this was part of your experience, but avoiding attachments, from what I understand, that tends to be the outcome of a person whose parents were overly controlling, smothering, or misattuned to their child's needs. And that description does not sound like your mom, from what I know. No, I don't think that that's accurate. I think what's more accurate is if you go back to the underlying abandonment issues that I have had to manage my entire life. It's the idea that, you know, I had a a deep emotional connection to my mom. And when I was really young, when he was around my dad, and then dad left, I thought it was because of me, you know, that my presence and everything was going great with them until I showed up. We talked about that a lot on, I think, the Father's Day episode, talking about my relationship with my dad. But it was also, as a result, my mom being a single mom, working three and four jobs at a time to make ends meet. You know, my mom had a, and still does have a really incredible work ethic and determination and dedication. And, and vis-a-vis that though, I didn't see my mom a lot in certain stages because she was working so hard to make ends meet as a single parent, right? So in a certain way, I also felt a secondary layer of abandonment that, oh, dad left, mom has to work her ass off which also shaped a lot of my money issues that I'm still decoding, which is like, yeah, earning money is hard and it's painful and it it takes you away from your family and it's a bad thing. And that's a tangential external conversation. But I guess my point here, Whitney, is I didn't feel like either of my parents were overbearing or too controlling or any of those things. If anything, I think the core issue for me was deep, fractured self-worth issues based on my perception of abandonment. If I had to peg my core wound in this lifetime that I'm currently aware of, it's that. That is like the big, big one for me. And that is actually another thing that I've come across in the research is that an avoidance suspects that deep down everyone in their life is going to disappoint or abandon them. Mm. And that they're wired from their early childhood experiences in a way that causes them great loneliness. And I think it's, yeah. there's a lot of this, like, I'm going to abandon you before you abandon me in yeah. relationships. Yeah, it's a defense mechanism, for yeah. sure, for sure. And if I keep you at an arm's length, then you can't hurt me. Yes. And I'm meant to be alone anyways. Yes. Well, you know, what's interesting, too, yeah. is that avoidance will often choose partners based on sexual chemistry rather than emotional chemistry. And that's another thing that you don't seem to do in your dynamics. So I'm fascinated. I mean, (laughs) Jason Green, I got he kind of did his analysis of you on those episodes too. And I could see why it was fascinating for him because you're not like a cut and yeah, both either one, cut cut and dry, copy paste, either one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I actually think that you're a great example for others when they're looking at their own attachment styles, because we're not going to fit perfectly in them. But some of these big things clearly are are hitting the nail on the head for you. And I think it's really just a fascinating thing. And so going back to what I wanted to talk about in this article I found about the elusive person was the different types of behaviors that come up. And I think it's it's an interesting thing culturally. And a lot of these terms I actually hadn't heard of or maybe I hadn't fully explored before. So one of them is called benching. And this is when someone that like you kind of feel like you're sitting on a bench waiting for them to choose you like a bench warmer in a basketball game. 
Hmm. I can right. So they're like, they're like can, putting yeah. you on the bench and as yeah. like, and what would happen for someone, this again, would typically be the anxious attachment style. Like they're just sitting there waiting to be chosen again. And you're just being used as a bench warmer in a basketball game. It's pretty Are you saying that it. you have experience being sitting on the bench or putting people on the bench or both? Both. Interesting. Like what are some examples of that? Mm, I think there have been points in my life where I've, when I wasn't in a committed relationship, a partnership or dating someone exclusively, and I would have say multiple women that I was casually dating. It was like, I'm just going to see where all this goes and maybe pick one of you. Maybe I won't pick one of you. Not really sure. You know, it's, yeah, I definitely can look at times in between committed relationships where I've been casually dating. I think I've done that. And I also have felt like I've been on the receiving end where I've been the bench warmer, where I could feel this energy of like, I don't know that she's really into me, but we're hanging out, but I'm not really feeling like a deep magnetism from her. It's almost like a milder version of that one person is more in love or more interested than the other. And you can feel that energetic difference. Do you know what I mean, Whitney, where it's like, I think I kind of like him, but he's really, really crushing on me or vice versa. I think this is kind of an offshoot of that, where someone's more emotionally invested or wants to mash the pedal, the accelerator, like, let's go really fast. And you're like, eh, let's slow it down. I don't know about you. I don't know about you yet. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I, I certainly am familiar with that. I think I've been more the bench warmer than the person putting someone on a bench. I mean, I think that a lot of us experience this throughout our lives. And it's kind of like we enjoy having options. And it's nice sometimes when somebody feels more into you than you are into them, especially for someone like me, who I I typically as an anxious attachment style tend to be the person that seems a little bit more into them. And that was the other thing with learning about the avoidant attachment style is realizing like, oh, it's not that I'm necessarily needy. It's that I'm being perceived as needy because this person's avoidant and we're just these two extremes. You know what I mean? And so it's really interesting when you intentionally or just happen to date somebody that isn't on such an extreme, then you realize, oh, it it wasn't necessarily that I was needy. It's just that I wasn't a match or this person hasn't fully worked through these issues. And That's actually another thing that keeps coming up in articles and books that I've read about attachment styles is that if somebody's willing to do the work, they could either change or shift out of that extreme attachment style and or they can just choose not to operate that way. Like if they can be really conscious and aware of their behaviors, especially like these elusive practices we're talking about now, then you can just choose not to do those things. Like even it's just like anything else in life really. It's it's not that you won't have the urges or be triggered by things, but you can choose your re- reactions more consciously. And I think that I've witnessed that a lot with you Jason and seeing your awareness grow and how you're really trying to put more more things into practice that won't necessarily sabotage things. Like I would say that's yeah. a word I would have attributed to you a lot in the past as it seemed like you were sabotaging. And I, th- I see that you have like a tendency to look for the flaws in people. And that's a, another huge feature characteristic of an avoidant is that they're looking for this perfect person that doesn't actually exist. 
So everybody that they date, they're constantly picking apart and being like, nope, that person doesn't fit my idea of perfection. So I'm not going to date them. And you use that as a reason to not be in the relationship. Well, okay. So this this is a really interesting tie-in to what I see a lot, not all, but a lot of, for lack of a better word, relationship experts or gurus or whatever they call themselves. It's kind of a, I think, a mutation of the mentality of the manifestation mentality we've been talking about in recent episodes of, of sort of the toxic side of wokeness and the toxic side of positive spirituality and a lot of the stuff that's been going around is don't compromise. You got to wait for that perfect person. Write your list, you know, do your mantras every day, meditate on the list, do your vision board. Don't compromise. You've waited this long. You're in your forties now. Uh, you're in your fifties now. Don't compromise. Don't you do it. It's a slippery slope, right? Because as you're describing my tendency, which I do agree with Whitney, especially reviewing the way that I have I suppose, evaluated or scrutinized certain people and used what I perceive as character flaws as reasons to be like, this isn't going to work. I definitely have to take ownership of that. It it definitely resonates. But it's a slippery slope. I I hope I'm describing this accurately enough where there's a mentality from, you see it on so many people, you know, on Instagram and social media, like, you know, if he's got this thing, like, you know, don't commit to him or don't commit to her because blah, blah, blah. I hope I'm describing this. It's like, there's this idea of don't compromise until that quote ideal person comes to you and then everything is fantasy land and everything's amazing because you waited and you were patient and you prayed and you meditated and you wrote your list. And I don't know, it's just, it seems like a fine line and a slippery slope. Yeah. Well, we also have to have a lot of perspective when it comes to information that we gather from online. And I think this is part of the danger of social media and how one of the reasons that you and I, Jason, are so irked when people want to call themselves an expert, you know, like I've I've actually been working really hard to be mindful of when I use that term. And sometimes I'll throw it around casually, like, you know, calling Jason Green an expert on attachment styles, like it's kind of like a lack of another word to use for him. Right, right. And technically, he's not an expert because it's not like he went to school for this. And he's, it's also very relative, too. Like somebody's commitment level to studying information over time. And someone like Jason Green certainly has a lot more knowledge on attachment styles because he's so in it. Like he's immersed himself in it, right? And so he can speak on it very confidently and, and pull from a lot of data that he has. And so I think that's really helpful. But there's a danger on platforms like social media when you've kind of got these armchair experts or these people that like have a few experiences and learn a few things and suddenly feel like they're an expert, or even if they're not intentionally positioning themselves as an expert, because they're sharing information a lot. And people start to look up to them and trust them. You think, okay, well, this person knows what they're talking about. And then what also happens is that a lot of different people keep saying the same things. And so this idea gets perpetuated. And I think this absolutely happens with dating advice is you see all these people being like, you shouldn't, you know, if somebody treats you this way, you shouldn't allow them to and they're not the right person for you and and they kind of make these 
huge overarching statements. And I think those are really something that we can be susceptible to, especially when we're feeling like very soft and vulnerable and looking for answers and, and sometimes even looking for the confirmation bias, right? We want somebody to like tell us that this person isn't right for us or that this person is right for us. Like we're looking for that confirmation of what we really want. And so we seek out information that agrees with us or we seek out the extreme opposite also as a way to either sabotage or protect ourselves. And I think all of this that I'm describing can be really dangerous because a lot of the information that's shared on social media is not based in research or somebody that's studying something. And it is really tricky when it comes to dating because first of all, like somebody can make so many assumptions on your situation by you describing it to them in like a few sentences and suddenly they're like, oh, well, I know exactly what you should be doing. We're such complicated human beings that our dating lives can't be like fixed or understood by a short conversation with a stranger. You know what I mean? Or like well, for sure. just for sure. because somebody's situation seems similar to ours doesn't mean that our results are going to be the same as theirs. Just like we were talking about with business. And I think as was a Taylor when we had her on a few episodes ago talking about happiness, she said that a lot of people are looking for these formulas and it, it sometimes comes out of this laziness or this desire to just figure things out as quickly as possible and get to the answers. And as we know, when it comes to wellness, well-being and health and all of these different elements of our lives, most things take a lot of time and they're very complex. There's no quick answer to them or quick solution. So I guess like I've been trying to be really mindful of like who I'm listening to when it comes to anything relationship based (laughs) because, you know, people might not even know about attachment styles. So who are they to be giving dating advice when like this kind of, oh, well, if this guy is doing, is not texting you back right away, then just don't give him another chance. But when you read about attachment styles, my heart actually goes out to men or women that aren't responding right away because we have no idea what they're going through mentally. You know what I mean? And like, this is also true in general with people's behavior, like just to judge them based on that one incident or a few similar things. Like we don't know what what's going on in their lives. We don't know what they're struggling with, what their histories are. We don't know what their attachment styles unless they tell us. Like we don't know if they have anxiety or if there's something just really challenging that they're working through and they just don't know how to handle it properly. And I think one of the important things that we can do as human beings is to have compassion and not make judgments or jump to conclusions about someone just because of their behavior. It reminds me a little bit, Whitney, of, well, first of all, a previous episode that we did about um, the gurus and experts and also the episode we did on on bridges and walls, what titles and, and labels really do to us. You recently mentioned in the episode we did with with Taylor Proctor about um, reading Mark Manson's first book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And you you sent me a really wonderful uh, paragraph, a short, short paragraph from that book that that this reminds me of this. And and the danger of 
formulas and one size fits all advice and also the the part of ego that people really want to feel like that they're saviors and that they're the ones bringing the truth and the way and shining the light and that's definitely a an aspect of our society and people's minds we need to pay attention to and the paragraph you sent which was awesome was uh they as in these experts manage to delude themselves into believing that they are accomplishing great things even when they're not they believe they're the brilliant presenter on stage when actually they're just making a fool of themselves. They believe that they've had the successful startup founder when in fact they've never had a successful venture. They call themselves life coaches and charge money to help others even though they're only 25 years old and haven't actually accomplished anything substantial in their lives yet. And this isn't to you know, call out people that are in their 20s or millennials or net geners and say you don't know anything, but it goes back to this mentality of Hey, I'm going to help you solve, you know, your relationship woes, your financial woes, your this, your that. And and it doesn't take into account Whitney as you said the nuance of this person's trauma, their fears, their personality disorders, their their mental health challenges. It doesn't honor the intricacy and nuance of the individual experience. And as an offshoot of this, I've really stopped listening to and subscribing to a lot of people in the past. I don't need to call them out by name, but for right now, I just really have no desire to listen to them anymore. I've really stopped reading their newsletters and reading their books. And there's a lot of these type of people that when I see their content right now, Whitney, it creates a really interesting response in my body where I'm like, nope, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to read it. It doesn't resonate. And I think it's because I want to trust my intuition more and do my own research and not follow a, as you said, a copy and paste formula for financial abundance and whatever it is. I just, I feel like I'm much more attuned to that type of marketing now, how prevalent that type of marketing is. And I just, I don't want to pay attention to it anymore. I don't want to give it any, any energy. Well, I think part of it is because it's like a bit of the clickbait way of doing business. People, a lot of these people just learn that if they make bold statements or they use the right type of quote or inspirational message, or if they say something that they know people are going to agree with, then they'll get more followers and more engagement, likes and comments and clicks to their website. And that, that does become a big part of how they monetize. And certainly, I've tried these things as well, too. I mean, I've experimented with, with clickbait and trying to figure out how do I draw people in. But Ultimately, it's really not that rewarding and it doesn't really make me that much money because I'm not willing to sacrifice my integrity and my values to such an extreme just to make money. And I think a lot of people do it kind of like innocently where they think it's okay because so many people operate that way online and it's it feels so competitive. Like I got to be the person that gets the most followers or traffic or, or makes the most money and and I think that's really made the internet a challenging place because it does take a lot of time to assess somebody out and decide if you can trust them and you align with them and why are they saying things and where did they get this information from? And it also becomes dangerous if you look at this time that we're in right now with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, with the government in the United States, it's our election year. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation being spread about all these topics. Plus, there's conspiracy theories. Like, you go on online and you can easily come up against a lot of conflicting information, and it can make 
you feel very overwhelmed and want to disconnect entirely and stop feeling like you can trust anybody online. And then that causes people to not want to take any action because they don't know what's the right or wrong decision for themselves. It can cause people to make poor decisions because they're trusting somebody's advice for them. And it turns out that that might not be the right path. And that can lead to a lot of depression and and challenging emotions. So it's really tricky. And coming back to the relationship side of it, I mean, we are so vulnerable when it comes to romance. And I also think the challenge with this too, is that if we have this like black and white viewpoint on people's behavior, it can really cause us to lack a lot of compassion and draw, cause us to isolate ourselves or uh, cut people off. You know, we've talked about this before where, I mean, I've experienced this either in romantic relationships or in friendships. We talked about this when we, we had the episode about ghosting and how I felt cut off from people's lives very abruptly. And it's like, wow, just because I said something or didn't say something or because I had this one behavior or I didn't have the right this behavior. And for someone like me with an, at- an anxious attachment and a general battle with shame, it's really tough on my psyche because it feels like that rejection is like such a personal offense, right? And it's like you can easily eternalize it and then feel really lonely and when I read these things about avoiding attachments, my heart goes out to the to people like yourself, Jason, anybody else who is avoidant. It's like, a, I imagine there's got to be a level of feeling misunderstood a lot or not feeling like somebody will take the time to really understand you and have that compassion, for lack of a better word, for your life experiences, you know? And I think the same thing can be said about someone with an anxious attachment. It's like, if you perceive me as needy, what if instead of saying like, I don't like you because you're needy or you're not right for me because you're needy or whatever the reaction is, what if instead it was really having compassion and saying, well, why are you needy? Like what's going on and why are you having this reaction and how can we work through this together? And I think if more of us took that perspective in our relationships, even with our friends, right? Again, these things can show up in our friendships and our work relationships. It can really be transformative. We've talked a lot about the four tendencies that comes up so frequently on this show. And for me being a questioner, I've also struggled romantically in friendships and work dynamics with people that get frustrated with me because I ask a lot of questions and somebody that's not a questioner doesn't understand why the word why is very important to me. You know, I'm somebody that wants to know why about everything. That's how I make decisions. That's how I feel comfortable and safe. I like to analyze things. And some people really enjoy that part of me and some people really dislike it or struggle with it. And I have experienced a lot of shame because of people's reactions to that, just like I've experienced that as an anxious attachment and people perceiving me as being needy or controlling. And the times that have felt the best to me in all of those different dynamics with people has been when they're more accepting and they want to try to get to the core of why I operate that way. 
Would you say that you've experienced that yourself as being a rebellious tendency and an avoidant attachment, Jason, when people seem to kind of pick on you or reject you for certain elements of your behavior and personality, do you feel like there would be a big shift if instead of just pushing you away or making funny or whatever they do, that somebody was more understanding and accepting of that? I think it would be a title shift, honestly. And it would be something that I feel like would allow me to reflect on and process and perhaps transmute a lot of the subconscious behaviors or a lot of the coping mechanisms and coping behaviors that I've I've had over the course of my life. Now, the other layer to this is I've always and continue to be just a very sensitive, emotionally deep human being that uh, I've had women comment pretty frequently, like I've, I've never been with a guy as sensitive or emotionally in tune as you might freak them out because typically men are not all men, but you know, there's certainly an inculcation of a masculine archetype that is emotionally shut down. Just do the work, put your head down, suck it up. Don't cry. You know, all that, all that subconscious programming that as a man in society, we, we are subjected to. And I think I've always just maintained an extreme level of the archetype of masculinity, just very, very sensitive. So that's another layer to what you're describing is not feeling understood because it's like, oh, you're not used to a sensitive man. Well, this is, this is who I've always been since I was a very little child. I've always been super sensitive and super, my EQ, I suppose, my emotional quotient has always been very high. I've misunderstood it. I felt weird as a kid and a young man because I was like, wow, I'm way more sensitive than these other guys. I guess my point here is that it's been easier in certain situations in the past for me to say, I don't feel gotten. I don't feel understood. Uh, moreover, I don't feel like this person wants to really understand where I'm coming from. So fuck it. It'll be easier to be alone. Kind of doing a callback to what you said of, of the typical avoidant tendencies of like, yeah, I'm meant to be alone. It's easier this way. No one really wants to understand. They're just like, yeah, I think that feeling misunderstood or feeling like people don't really want to understand me in certain ways, or they're freaked out by the way I am or whatever it is has led to me adopting a mentality at points in my life of it'll just be easier to go this alone. It's easier that way. Yeah, it's really a game changer when we can take the time to try to understand somebody versus writing them off or saying that they're not a fit for us. And I mean, I know it would be for me if I felt like more people approached me that way and tried to get out of their own egos to better understand someone that's different than them. That's a huge part of life in general. I mean, that's that that can also be an element of racism as well. And 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 that, oh, this person doesn't look like me and I'm gonna make all these assumptions about them. And it does go back to kind of some old like tribal mentalities. Like, is this person like me or not? If they're not like me, they're not part of my tribe, and thus I shouldn't trust them. I mean, I think that we also need to be gentle with ourselves and understand that there's a lot of you know, historical or even genetic and cultural societal impact that we have. And we do need to do a lot of self-work in order to come to this place of greater understanding and compassion and acceptance of other people. 
and not jumping to conclusions. And this is part of doing that work on yourself in relationships is there's a reason that relationships are perceived as work is that you have to really get to know somebody and accept them and deeply love them and know that they're different than you and they approach life differently based on their different experiences in life. Going back to the different behaviors that I want to talk about today, another big one is breadcrumbing, <laughs> which Bread is a term. Crumbing? Wait, you haven't heard this term? I'm assuming what I think it might mean, but I don't want to assume. Which is what? Giving people a little bit, but not too much, like stringing them along. Like, here's yeah. a little bit of affection. Here's a little bit of attention. Here's a little bit of love. Here's a little bit of recognition, but not too much. Because I want you to get addicted because of the not enoughness. So you keep coming back for more because yes. that puts me by being the dispenser of said breadcrumb puts me in a position of control. Well, I don't know. I mean, this article I'm referencing on, on psychcentral.com, which again, it, it will be linked to on our website in the show notes. It doesn't say the reason it is happening. I mean, these characteristics, this behavior is typically attributed to somebody who's avoidant and Usually the recipient of the breadcrumbing is, is going to be someone who's anxious because they'll take whatever they can get. That tends to be like an, an anxious thing like, oh, okay, well, I don't feel good enough, so I'm okay with being strung along or I really like this person. And so whatever they give me, that's enough to keep me around, right? You know what it reminds me of is this visual of like... <laughs> like from a medieval movie of like, please, sir, please, just a little bit more gruel in my bowl, please. Oh, oh, and oh, you're very generous today to sprinkle some three-day-old bread on top of the gruel. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. It's like a begging bowl situation. Yeah. I mean, so. I think of Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting because people can get really worked up about breadcrumbing. And it's certainly something that I've experienced as well, but it just makes me wonder like, wow, like here I was so upset that somebody was potentially breadcrumbing me, but like, what about what they're going through? Like, why are they behaving that way? I mean, when I can look at, at, at it more of outside of myself and that feeling of like getting defensive and wanting to blame and play the victim, I just start to wonder like, what is it that causes that person to do those things, you know? And do you feel like you've ever breadcrumbed somebody, Jason? Like I, the definition in this article is you're tossing out small bits of reinforcement that are just enough to keep somebody around. I don't think that I identify with that so much. It's, mm, I feel like I'm pretty forthright when I really like someone, I let them know. Right. And, I, and I've received that feedback from women that I've dated, you know, that I'm no longer dating. You've actually said that when we were dating. You were like, when we started dating, or I've heard it from other partners, they were like, you were very forthright about your interest. You That's were very true. clear about it. Yeah. I don't think that I have a tendency to breadcrumb. I think what I do have is the one foot out the door scenario where I'm like, oh, I'm not really fully committed to this because I'm unsure and I'm afraid and it's my past programming. Mm -hmm. But if I like someone and I'm into someone, I will... I'll let them know verbally. I'll let them know physically. I try and learn what their love language is. So I don't think I'm a breadcrumber. I think I, I give don't them, think so either. I think I give them the full soup in the bread bowl and be like, here, I just bake <laughs> this fresh for you. You know? Well, I guess what I wonder about this too is some of these behaviors are more common with younger people. 
doing these things. Both men and women can do them. And I think that it's not just the attachment style. It's like what's culturally acceptable. We talked about this with ghosting as well and ghosting being part of this list. There's also something called cloaking, which is when you are ghosted and blocked, right? So ghosting is like somebody unexpectedly stops communicating with you without explanation. But then if the next level is cloaking, apparently, if they block you as well. And gosh, that actually happened to me with a friend. And that hurt. It still hurts to this day because I'm still blocked by this old friend of mine. And it's like every once in a while, I'll go and check and see if I'm still blocked by her. And I am. And it's <laughs> it's really sad because, but my heart, I guess my heart goes out to her and I take responsibility for the inciting incident, I believe, but it was never even communicated to me what she was feeling. And that's, I think, part of the pain here is like, if you don't understand somebody, but they have these behaviors towards you, it's really tough to process, especially if you're anxious like me. You know what I also wonder is like, gosh, maybe I've had a lot of avoidant friends. You know, maybe that particular friend I'm referencing right now is an avoidant attachment style because I certainly am anxious in my friendships as well. It's just a overwhelming underlying experience that I have throughout life is that feeling of not good enoughness or tiptoeing around and not wanting to say the wrong thing or feel rejected. And so it's no surprise that I've experienced a lot of these things. But But going back to what I was saying, it's like, I think a lot of these behaviors are more culturally acceptable, especially with younger generations, because they're so common. And I don't know if they're more common now. And are they common because people know about them? Like, oh, ghosting, like this is kind of acceptable. It's almost like the Irish goodbye, which I love. (laughs) I am a big Irish goodbye type person. Is, Is that the right term, Jason? It is. Yeah. When you're at like an event and you just leave without saying yeah, goodbye, yeah. I wonder why it's called an like why is it called an Irish goodbye? Is that is that because it's typically is it culturally acceptable in Ireland to do that? Like where did that term even come? I'm gonna look this up. While you're looking it up, I I want to give my reasons for doing the Irish goodbye. Is when I'm ready to leave. I think we covered this in the episode with Monica Schrock about introversion. Yes. Yep, that yep. I'm typically a very extroverted person. I get fueled up by being on stage, performing, you know, being in front of large crowds, all that stuff. But there's inevitably a point where my wick burns down to nothingness. And then I'm like, I got to go. Like, What do you mean? No, I'm done. I'm done. And I know that if I, in the, I don't even know what to call it, conscious, spiritual, wellness, self-help, whatever the fuck this community is called. I don't even have a word for it. People who are trying to work on themselves. There's this thing of like, oh yeah, brother. Yeah, sister. Let me give you like long eye gazing and hug you way too long, which I love physical affection. I love eye gazing. But when I'm on the way out the door, I don't want to spend another 40 minutes saying goodbye to people. Like I just want to go. I've adopted the Irish goodbye in the last few years because I'm like, nah, I'm not adding another 30 to 40 minutes onto this experience saying goodbye to people and hugging them and eye gazing and all that shit. I just want to go. I'm done. I'm donezo. It's bedtime for Bonzo, y'all. I'm out. Well, apparently the another term for the Irish goodbye is a French exit or a Dutch leave. So there's something going on with the uh, European cultural stereotypes 
I like it because I imagine myself just walking out the door and going, au revoir, <laughs> I'm going to bed. Oh, you know, this is actually kind of interesting, a little piece of history. According to an article from ABC News, the Irish goodbye is attributed to the potato famine of 19, or 1845 to 1852 when many Irish fled their homeland for America. At the time, distance and technology meant that when someone went to America, they were gone forever, and it was unlikely they would ever again speak to or see their friends or family. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. That's that's fascinating. Can you imagine leaving a party like, okay, goodbye forever. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never hear from me again. But that's, you know, also you can see why uh, ghosting is, kind of similar to that in a lot of ways. I think ghosting, to answer your question or your inquiry from a few minutes ago, Whitney, I think there's an aspect of conditioning that happens culturally, that ghosting and cloaking become totally okay because everyone else is doing it. And I also think, though, it does go back to the fact that technology has made us available to nearly 8 billion people on the planet. And it it's endemic of, I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago, what I observe culturally, especially I see it more in millennials and Gen Z that it's like, yeah, if this doesn't work out, fuck it. Cause I know there'll be like 15 more dudes or 15 more chicks waiting for me. It's the new, better, more different. It's, it's shopping online for a person. It's, I know, yeah, I'm, I'm not really going to invest too much in this. Cause I know like I can have 10 more dates lined up. I can go on Tinder. I can go on Raya. I can go on coffee meets bagel, like whatever the dating channel is. And I can just like find more people. So I don't really need to invest any more energy in this. Bye. Bye bye. I think I think it really is a conditioning thing. And I think it's endemic of our distracted technocratic culture that is kind of dehumanizing in a way. I'm gonna use that word. It's it, there there are a lot of aspects of our culture right now that are very dehumanizing. Oh, for sure. And I also think that they're very much in the ego. It's like, well, you're not good enough for me. I deserve better. So I'm going to go get better because Bingo. I can, you know, find somebody else. But this is the thing that, gosh, where was I reading this? I read so much that I can't even keep track of where I get information sometimes. But <laughs> something I was reading was talking about how a lot of the times we, maybe it was a subtle art of giving a fuck. It certainly was part of the messaging in there is like, we keep hopping from one thing to the next thinking it's going to cause us happiness, but something that's shiny and new is eventually not going to be shiny and new anymore. And so we're going to be back in the same situation we were in before. Yeah, And this is absolutely true with relationships. And one reason why I think it's so important to really give somebody a chance and try to get to know them and understand them And I think also something that makes it actually a little bit more complicated, (laughs) which I'll get to in a moment. But, but you know, just this idea of like, well, you're not good enough for me. I'm going to go to the next person. There's going to be something about that person that you're not going to like too. And you might be in a better or worse scenario, or it might be the exact same type of feeling, just a different type of situation that you're in at that point. So, I think actually there's a lot to be said about committed relationships and people that just get into a relationship and stick through it because it it's that, hey, like it's not necessarily going to get much better than this. But where it becomes really tricky is that 
you wonder like, is there really anyone that's like perfect for you or made for you, this soulmate mentality? Or could potentially anybody be perfect for you because it's more about having acceptance and love and compassion for everyone? Do you know what I'm saying? Like that actually starts to feel like a big uh, shift in thinking for me because for most of my life, I was operating under this mentality of like finding the one, you know, like I'm going to go out and like find that perfect person that I'm meant to be with. And these ideas of love at first sight or wow, this person like fits everything that I want. And you know, that we're on the search for it. But as you know, Jason, like you can be on that search for a long time. And like, how do you know that you're, there really is that person? Like, is that just the pot of gold? Is that actually exist? And like, but then also when do you decide to stay with one person? If that person's just as flawed as the previous person, then like what, <laughs> what makes it any better for you? Do, does this make any sense? Like yeah. cognitively, like when I yeah. really start to like strip away at it, I'm like, gosh, like aside from there is that judge factor where like certain people you just like are magnetically drawn to and there's something about them you cannot describe and that you just get this feeling about them that you either have never experienced before or you've experienced very little in your life. But I have not been in a relationship long enough to know if that entirely goes away at some point or could that technically be a long-term thing? Is that just lust? Is that just that initial phase of love? You know, I'm not sure. And I don't think anyone can actually even tell you because each of us experience relationships so differently from one another. There's just too many factors. Nothing. That's the other part. Coming back to this idea of a relationship expert. It's like anything else in life where nobody can tell you what the right decision for you is. I think the only case where it's a bad decision is if it's like you're in an abusive relationship because if just because you're unhappy in a relationship doesn't mean that that person isn't a good match for you. You just might be unhappy. It might have nothing to do with them. It might be entirely about you. So technically, it's not really that the relationship's to blame. And granted, since I'm not a relationship expert, I can't even fully talk about this. I don't have that knowledge and research to back up anything that I'm saying. These are just all my pondering. Well, it's certainly a subject that humanity has pondered since the dawn of organized civilization. Maybe before that, who the hell knows what the Neanderthals and cavemen and our predecessors were thinking about any of this, but certainly with song and art and music and poetry and all the aspects of organized, civilized human culture, love and connection and relationship, this conversation we're having is as old as time. Really, Whitney, when you think about it. so Can you sing the Tale as Old as Time song from Beauty and the Beast? I don't know it. Are you serious? No, I'm sorry. Gosh, I'm I would sorry. sing it, but I'm, I'm not confident enough to sing it. But, but when you said that... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you literally don't know what I'm talking about? No, I'm sorry. Like, like when I say sing the tale as old as time song from Beauty and the Beast, you don't, you don't know. Uh, other than knowing what Beauty and the Beast is, I have no <gasps> reference point for that song. 
Jason. Wow. That's yeah. a classic Disney song. I didn't yeah. mean to inter- interrupt you. Wasn't my I, bag. Wasn't my bag. I was really hoping you would just spontaneously break I'm out sorry. into that song. Maybe I need to learn it on acoustic and do a cover <laughs> of it now. Do a cover version. I mean, that's a really classic Disney song. Yeah. I mean, it is funny, though. You bring up Beauty and the Beast. I mean, these tropes, these archetypes of love and romance and relationship, we go back even further into Greek, Roman, Sumerian mythology, Egyptian mythology. These are themes and concepts and musings that have befuddled and emboldened and made curious humans for thousands and thousands of years. What is love? What is the nature of love? What is the nature of connection? What is the nature of romance what is the nature of the alchemy of two souls meeting we don't know we don't we try and use words and language to describe something that i believe is ultimately this ethereal feeling that is very difficult to describe with words we talk about love and connection but oftentimes i'm like the words don't really do this justice you just sit and you feel it with someone and it's this magical mystical beautiful chemical thing that you could be reductionist about it and go like, well, you know, this is the uh, the oxytocin is elevated in your brain chemistry and blood. It's like, shut the fuck up. Let's, let me feel this and stop analyzing it so much. So mm-hmm. let me swim in it. We want to analyze stuff. We want to figure it out. And I admire that about humanity, but I also believe that language and science and chemistry can only go so far in trying to describe the totality and beauty and mystery of something like love. That's why we have poetry and music and novels and wars dedicated to this thing. Like, really, if you think about love, humans are obsessed with it. We're obsessed with trying to feel it, get it, not lose it, figure out what it is. I mean, I would say that other than maybe the question of God or purpose or why are we here or what are we as human beings, love is right up there in terms of gigantic mystical musings of humanity, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's up there with the greatest questions of why are we here? What is love? love Mystical musings of humanity. It's true, right? I mean, that's a great phrase. Think about it. Other than why are we here? What are we? What is the nature of existence? Love is, in my opinion, love is up there with that kind of existential questioning of existence. Oh, for sure. And I think that can make it very complicated. And if you get too in your head, it almost seems impossible. I mean, I think I said this in a a previous episode, but I remember growing up and thinking like relationships were so simple. Maybe it was the ghosting episode, something that we recorded recently and, and just thinking like, I don't understand, like why are relationships are so hard? Like if you love someone, just be with them and it's not that easy. And I think there's something to be said about that mentality because maybe that's true. Like just as complicated as they can seem, relationships can also be really simple the challenge is that you have two people with all these different experiences and perspectives and thoughts and feelings trying to come together. And to me, I guess that that feeling that you have for one another, like if you're lucky and both have that same feeling for each other at the same time, like maybe that's really what holds it all together. But then some people say that you have to keep creating those feelings too. And that's part of the work. So I my hat goes off to anybody that's been in a long-term relationship and and genuinely feels happy in it especially these days you know I look back at my grandparents who are seemingly very happy with each other as their grandchild it always felt like they were and 
I just, my parents also seem fairly happy. I've, I've seen them struggle, but like my hat goes off to them too. They've been together for probably 40 years or so would be my guess. And my grandparents, I would guess at least 60 years. Let's see. That trips me out. You don't want to know why? 70 something actually based tri- on when my grandfather passed away. That trips me out, Whitney. And it tri- it tri- it tri- <laughs> it's it, a long time. It trips me out because of my own relative experience, right? In mm-hmm. the sense that the two longest romantic partnerships I've had, I've had two that were just under five years. Going beyond five years, that's unknown territory. That's like yeah. off the map stuff where there might be dragons and bears and <laughs> monsters and like, oh, the dark part of the woods. What's over there? We don't know. We've never made it. So having never crested a five-year mark and gone beyond that romantically with someone, it mystifies me and fascinates me. You know, one of the things that I I like to talk to my mentor, Michael, I I just, I always go back to him in so many episodes because he's such a wonderful human being. He recently married his partner, Kevin, but they've been together as, first of all, they've known each other since Kevin was in his teens and Michael was in his early 20s. They're both in their 70s now. But as life partners, they have been together for over 30 years. And it's one of those things where I just, I want to grill his brain as often as I can to be like, what have you learned? Not what are the secrets, you know, that's such like, what are the secrets? Like, what have you learned? What, how do you guys work through stuff? What is a way that you stay playful and connected and loving and I observe them and how they interact with each other and their communication is really wonderful even though they're very different people. They have maintained into their 70s a level of playfulness with each other and I think they've both allowed each other to be very different people. Like their interests are different. What they find exciting is different. There's overlap, right? There's common interests, but they're not the same person. And I think that's interesting, right, Whitney? Because for me, I have noticed a tendency in the past that I have wanted to, in certain ways, find someone who's like, yeah, you got to be into this and you've got to be interested in that and be passionate about this and feel the same way about this and think the same way about that. And I think certainly in matters of, I don't know, maybe spirituality or money or matters of the heart or certain ethical views, those things probably do need to be closer in alignment. But One thing I've observed, yeah, from Michael and Kevin and other people is that they're not mirror images of each other. There's enough difference and diversity and difference with them that, I don't know, maybe keeps it interesting. But again, I have not gone beyond the five-year mark. And when I hear about your grandparents or your parents or Michael and Kevin or certain people, I'm like, how do you do that? I agree. I actually think maybe my longest relationship was like two and a half or three years. Yeah, it's not that much time. It's something that I examine from time to time. And I think a lot of my perspective has been like, well, that person left me or I had like a really good reason for it. But then like you look at these patterns within yourself and you wonder like, obviously I'm playing a role too. So what am I doing that's causing these relationships to end around those times or before that time? And not playing that victim of like, oh, this just happens to me. Like you're both responsible for it. And I really feel like in many scenarios, like I probably could have fought for the relationships to work out if I didn't want to look for the escape exit myself. And and I also wonder when it comes to long-term relationships, like is there ego tied into this of 
not wanting to fail. And so staying in a relationship just because your ego doesn't want to admit that it's not working. You know, is it it that? Is it being driven by the number, being driven by this idea that you want to prove to other people or to yourself that you can stay in a long-term relationship? And Or some people that stay in relationships for external reasons, like their kids or their religion or various elements of their lifestyle. Like there's so many factors in which people stay in in relationships with each other or break up. And I'm just, I'm really fascinated by it. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that I'm fascinated because clearly our listeners are really interested in this subject matter too. So we should, and plan to dive into these things more. We're going to start to wrap this episode up, but before we do, I wanted to share a few more of these elusive behaviors that we didn't get to yet because there are some I've never heard of before. So Jason, I was thinking I could read them and you could tell me what you think the definition is. You're putting me on the spot again. Okay. (laughs) That's part of the fun. I got to make you uncomfortable. One of us has to be uncomfortable in every episode. All right. What do you think fire dooring means? Like fire dooring. Fire dooring. Mm. Like D O O R. Yeah. Um, perhaps it's taking a subject and uh, proverbially uh, igniting it so that it becomes a more serious subject so that you can use that inflamed subject that wasn't that serious in the first place as an excuse to leave the relationship. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Well, this definition, according to the Psych Central article, is when the relationship is one-sided and you do all the work while the other person only comes around when they want something. And I think fire dooring is like, you know, on fire doors, they, one side has um, oh, doesn't have a handle. Oh, right. And so you need somebody on the other side to press and open the door for you to go through. And so that one-sided dynamic where... You're doing all the work and that person, oh, maybe it's the other way around where you have to open the door and that person only comes through when they feel like it. I don't know. <laughs> but that's also interesting, right? Where I felt that way too. But a lot of this is also like a matter of perception. Like I could certainly read this and identify and be like, oh yeah, I've been fire doored. <laughs> <laughs> but... I don't know. Like, is it your ego saying that you're doing all the work or or being like the victim? Like, oh, I did all the work and this person only comes when they want something. Like, I'm telling you. Yeah. When I've talked to men after the romance has ended, like ex-boyfriends, previous partners, men that I've dated, like if I have vulnerable conversations with them, generally there's so much more than met the eye during that situation. And this is what I mean. It's like, it's so interesting how when you're in a relationship, sometimes it's really hard to get an honest answer. And most of the honest answers I've received from men that I've dated seriously or casually come after it ends. And that's also fascinating to me too. Why is it so hard to have these honest conversations and easier communication when you're in a relationship, at least in my experience, right? It's certainly, maybe for me, I feel so vulnerable in relationships. And because of the anxious attachment style, it's like, I'm afraid to bring up certain things because I don't want to like rock the boat. And maybe if I like bring up fire door, like, are you fire dooring me? Like, 
that person might be offensive or offended or because they're avoidant, I think I've often felt afraid that if I say the wrong thing, I'll be abandoned as well. Like those abandonment issues come up for me too, Jason. Maybe it's that there's an idea of losing something or being abandoned or failing. And then once the relationship is over or has evolved into something else, then that pressure or that fear of loss or abandonment or quote, fucking it up to a degree is not there anymore. Like there's less at stake. Yeah. And there's more space to be honest because the fear isn't there anymore. Yep. Yep. That sounds right. All right. Next elusive behavior term is called haunting. I have no clue just, what that just could try. be. Just try. Haunting? <laughs> Make it up. Maybe it's, I mean, what do ghosts do? They like leave trails. They leave clues. <laughs> uh, maybe it's leaving dirty socks and underwear at someone's house for them to find at a later date to test them to see how much they love you. Because if they get annoyed <laughs> by something so simple, then fuck them. They're not the one. Okay. Maybe. Okay. No, no. Actually, I'm very entertained by this definition of haunting, which is it's like ghosting, except the ghoster continues to watch you on social media. (laughs) Isn't that the thing? When you go into your Instagram stories and I see you stalking me, motherfucker, I see you stalking me. That is such and I'm going to call out that as that is some that is some spineless bullshit ass behavior. (laughs) I'm going to call it out. I've had that happen to me where I'm like. yeah yeah you won't hit me back but you're fucking watching my stories oh my god that is so endemic of this generation and this moment people do that shit all the time what generation whatever the people using instagram stories it's in in, in particular instagram stories it's notorious for that yeah you can go in and see who's watched your stories and and you're like oh so you like want to keep up on me why it's weird behavior. I it's weird behavior. I agree and it's like social media is so voyeuristic, but I've done it too. And I don't necessarily go into stories. I'm not that into watching stories to be honest, and especially because you can see who watches your stories, but I actually I don't think I've ever told you this Jason. You might be very amused. <laughs> but there was um two instances that I used Facebook, and this is years ago. Actually, no, I did this with a number of people, and I'm, I'm going to be fully honest about this embarrassing <laughs> factoid. So back in, I think I created the account, gosh, it was probably 2010. I created a fake Facebook account so that I could go stalk this guy who ghosted me because I was so hurt by it. It was, I mean ghosting can be incredibly hurtful. And so I don't remember why exactly I felt the need to do this. I don't know. There was some tactic behind it, but I created this account so I could go like snoop around. And I don't know if like we were no longer friends or like I was trying to, I don't know. Now it doesn't quite make sense, but maybe Facebook operated differently 10 years ago. Jesus. It sounds almost like a version of a burner account. Mm, Do you know what a burner account is? Yeah. Yeah. It's where, and this burner accounts like the last five years, I think really came into the lexicon because certain athletes and celebrities would have these secret accounts, these anonymous accounts where they would go and comment 
on things knowing that it wasn't them and they got caught doing it. Oh no. Yeah. There was some fascinating, in one in particular, there's a basketball player named Kevin Durant who now plays for the Brooklyn Nets. And when he was playing for the Oklahoma city thunder, he had a burner account where he would go on and talk shit about certain people in the organization or the basketball team. And then they found out it was him talking shit. And then the shit hit the fan. <laughs> so it sounds like in a way you weren't doing it to like make negative comments or be no. critical. But there's an element of, I wonder how many people out there have burner accounts. I bet a lot of people do. And we don't know about it. Maybe this is what it, it's starting to come back to me now. I think I might have unfriended him on Facebook because I think he ghosted me through text, but like we were still friends on Facebook and I was so mad. I'm just imagine. I think this might be the story. And I unfriended him or something. So I created this separate account so I could see what he was up to without him knowing that I was paying attention. Maybe that was it. But here's the interesting thing. I ended up using that account for a few years for a few different reasons. One, actually two, was to spy on an ex-girlfriend of a guy that I was dating at the time who I was incredibly jealous of because she was this beautiful model and that ex-boyfriend of mine would talk about her a lot and I was fascinated by her. And so I went and like internet stalked her. But the only way I could at the time was to create this account and I think friend her as this fake person. <laughs> oh my God, it's so creepy that I did this. But you know, I'm sure a lot of people do this and would never admit it, but I will happily admit it because I don't do this anymore. <laughs> I think I was able to friend her and that way I was able to see like her photos that she kept just for friends. Like that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be able to see like pictures of her because I was like fascinated by her and it was like a glutton for punishment because I would like go and like look at her pictures and just feel so jealous of how she looked and like think like, gosh, like that was his previous girlfriend and like I don't know it was almost like I wasn't hating on her it was more like I was hating on myself or something yeah using it as ammunition to be unkind to yourself yeah for sure sure. Mm -hmm. and then I did that with one other ex-boyfriend he didn't have social media but his a wife they eventually got married did and I don't know if we ever became friends on there with that fake account but I think I use it to maybe stop. Maybe it felt safer so I could like look at her stuff without ever her knowing that it could be me if it was tracking me or something like that. But but yeah, I would I would do stuff like that because it felt safer to do. And so my again, my heart goes out to people that do stuff like that because it feels like your curiosity gets um satisfied in a different way. Then you you'll never be caught for haunting somebody, right? And so imagine like There could be people haunting you, Jason, or me that have fake accounts that they use so that they can do it without being caught. Possibility. Maybe I just gave some listeners ideas. And the other funny thing is about my fake Facebook account is that a couple friends of mine used it themselves once they found out I had it because I would admit this to my friends and I was like, you know, I created this fake account and they're like, oh my God. And they seemed all appalled by it. And then like a few months later, a couple of my friends were like, hey, um, can I use your account to stalk some people? And so they would go in, log into my account separately and use it to do their own stalking. And so like we had the shared like fake stalker accounts. 
Let me guess. You got found out because you named it something a little too close to your. No. Your, oh, because oh, I was going to say, I was Jason, say. <laughs> I was. I mean, listen. A lot of women my age will pride themselves on their internet skills, and so I like really. I came up with like this elaborate. It took a lot of mental energy to create this whole persona. I found this stock image of that was like not popular enough at the time so nobody you know i mean i went all out with this account and like created this whole identity it was kind of like catfishing you know what i mean like except i don't think i ever interacted with these people like it's not like they like unlike that burner account you're talking it's not like i was using it to go and comment or message or whatever that whole thing it was just simply to be able to stalk in a way and i think also social media has changed so much in 10 years you can probably do a lot of this stuff a lot more easily but that was like a huge undertaking <laughs> impressed yeah i don't impressed. know if it's impressed more as like an embarrassing skeleton in my closet well i'm something. glad that you brought it up i yeah. am glad that you brought it you up might because as well- it's be human. Yeah. A lot of us do weird shit that we normally don't talk about. And that's part of being uncomfortable. This is very, very true. Our personal evolutions. All right. A few more of these behaviors. This one's interesting. Submarining. <laughs> <laughs> Who came up with these words? What in the hell? I feel like this is also very dangerously close to like dirty sexual maneuvers or positions that people give weird names to. Okay. Like when you said submarining, I'm like, my mind went to a really dirty place. <laughs> but I know it's not that. In my mind, it is. But I'm a sick fuck. So. Oh, my God. Talk about skeletons. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm pretty kinky. Pretty kinky, everyone. Oh, my Should God. do an episode on that. Talk about getting uncomfortable. Whoa. Hey, hey, hey. When you like to make really kinky references with your girlfriend in front of me. Yeah, well, she's also kinky too. Yeah, so. I know you guys are a match made that. in heaven. Bunch of weirdos, bunch of weirdos. Being around the two of you can get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, sometimes. well, hey, it's. Are you the host of this? Might get uncomfortable. <laughs> I am. Well, then that makes sense. Yeah. Submarining, well, submarining. I you go, you disguise yourself, you put yourself in a tube. I'm blanking. I can't even venture a guess at this. Shit a right tube. Now. You hide yourself in someone's plumbing underneath their house so you can <laughs> spy on them. <laughs> that is elaborate. I found a way to access her crawl space so that I could spy on her. Creepy. Am I anywhere in the ballpark with that? No. Actually, I, the definition is also really, really good. Similar to ghosting, except... The person pops up again out of the blue and acts like nothing ever happened. That is annoying as hell. This has happened to you? Oh, yeah. Yep. Where where they're like, hi, how's it going? How you been? How's your birthday? How's this? How are the cats? You don't fucking care about the cats. (laughs) Don't act like you do. Julius doesn't give a shit about you. He's over here being a creamsicle (laughs) without you. That was very specific. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that is that is, dude. When people don't even acknowledge the distance or acknowledge yeah. the fracture, and they just act like nothing has happened, it's like, what level of sociopathy are you to not even acknowledge? But again, like I, my heart goes out because it's so awkward, like to have to admit. You know, actually, one of my, I have been 
what I would perceive as being submarine. Although I don't know if it, if it has to do with ghosting, I've had this, there's one person in particular who would like, we just go in and out of communication. And I, I've had this with a few men again, since I've d- dated a lot of avoidant men, but I mean, there was one man that like, like clockwork, we would talk for a month or two and then something would happen. We'd stop talking. Six months would go by and then I'd hear from him again. Like, and this went on for almost 10 years. It's not like my life stopped and I was waiting around for him. Like I just went on with my life, but he would come in and out of my life every six months or so. And sometimes, and then the time got stretched further and further. Like sometimes it'd be like a year or a few. I experienced that. And then also with somebody else, like, I don't know if it, I would say it's ghosting. Like neither one of us would say something. And so I, my definition of ghosting is it's not just that you don't hear from somebody, but ne- like if you reach out, they don't respond to you. And I certainly have played the role of if somebody doesn't communicate with me, then I don't bother communicating with them. Right. So I think it's a little different. Like if I tried to reach out to somebody and they would continue to ignore me, that sounds like ghosting. And I don't know how much I've experienced that actually. Maybe like that one person that I stalked on Facebook 10 years ago, (laughs) I think he ghosted me on the official definition. But a lot of men, I think like neither one of us would initiate conversation. And I wouldn't initiate because I was like kind of being in that submission submissive, anxious, like, Ooh, I I don't want to reach out and I don't want to rock the boat. I'll just wait for him to contact me. I've done that. That's actually very common behavior for me because it feels more comfortable to be in that receiving position as like a feminine submissive woman. Like I'll just wait till I hear from him or that way I feel safe and I don't have to put myself out there and be vulnerable. Right. And so if a guy doesn't reach out to me then I'll just stop communication with him. And so I've actually wondered, like, was he waiting for me to say something? You know what I mean? So yeah, this yeah. whole submarining thing is tricky because unless it's official ghosting, maybe you don't hear from someone because they haven't heard from you. And then you're in a stalemate. That's what I'm saying. So in a way, if they submarine, if they pop up again, then maybe they're just like, hey, remember me? Like, you haven't talked to me either. And Gosh, I've been in that situation too. Of, That's a good point, Whitney. That's a and, good point. I mean, I've even had like one relationship ended very abruptly and I wouldn't say it was ghosting. We kind of like broke up and it was like very abrupt and shocking and upsetting and it never felt like it had a big resolution. This has actually happened to me a couple of times. Gosh, it's bringing up all these old memories, but I've had multiple cases of you know, you just kind of break up and you feel like it's not resolved. And I felt like sad, like, gosh, I can't believe that things just ended and all of these feelings and experiences we had together and and now nothing. And then that person has come around a period of time later. Like in one case, it took like a year or so for me to hear from him again. And he had like this huge apology and he t- took full accountability for it. But it took him a whole year to find the courage to reach out to me and tell me what was going on. And that's what I'm saying about compassion. Like, not everybody has that courage. Maybe you just don't hear from them because they don't have that confidence. They don't have that ability, that inner strength. Maybe they think that you don't want to hear from them or you just have no idea what's going on for that person. So if this submarining happens, what if that's just their way of 
trying to brush it off and be like, it's too uncomfortable for me to address the fact that you haven't heard from me, but I really want to talk to you. So I'm just going to jump in and maybe we can just like move past that period. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think you have a much more compassionate approach and perspective on it than I do. (laughs) I mean, this tends to be the case with us though. I feel like in general, you're a little bit more stern with your yeah i just get sick of people's shit and don't give them as much leash let's hear it let's hear your perspective you give them more leash than i do you know what i mean (laughs) i'm like you got a short leash if you fuck up and do it enough times i'm handing the leash to someone else (laughs) you and i have different attachment styles but also that's true are you doing that to protect yourself though i guess like i don't know if it's a glutton for punishment thing for me or that I don't mind like that vulnerability of giving somebody another chance. You know? I think <laughs> I am a really compassionate person. I'm joking halfway because I do think that I'm becoming more understanding and lenient and slowing down to understand people. I do believe that I'm doing more of that as I go on, but also perhaps paradoxically, I'm less apt to suffer fools that the more I go on, the older I get. You know, whereas if I see people engaging in behavior that I think is, how do I even phrase this to make it make sense? I just think that I'm less apt to suffer fools. Like if I see someone acting in really disrespectful ways or ways that I find are demoralizing or disrespectful, I just have a less tolerance for it the more I go on. And I suppose if I reflect it as a mirror back to myself, I have less tolerance for myself engaging in disrespectful behavior. It doesn't mean that. There aren't going to be times when we say something that might hurt someone's feelings or disrespect them. But I don't know. This submarining thing is kind of a hot button for me. It's interesting what it's bringing up because it's almost like, don't act like shit hasn't gone down. Like, let's just talk about it. It's not to be punitive or to hold someone accountable. It's like, let's talk about the fact that we haven't communicated in six months or like maybe there was some weirdness that gets resolved. Don't act like it's not there. Like, let's just be real with each other. And I suppose it's because I value openness and realness and honesty with people more than I ever have. And I just don't want people acting like weirdness doesn't need to be resolved. Like I can't move forward in a friendship with someone if they're just like, yeah, nothing's happened. Let's just pick it back up. It's like, no, let's resolve it and then maybe move forward. Does any of that make sense? Oh, it does. I guess like you could also take the responsibility to bring that up with somebody. And I don't know if submarining means that if you were like, hey, uh, I haven't heard from you. Like, this is kind of weird. And they still act like nothing's happened. Like, what if if this person is willing to address it if you bring it up with them? Then I guess that's a completely different scenario versus if they refuse to. Yes, because if they refuse or they are acting delusional about... If they refuse to discuss it, they're acting in a semi-delusional way about the reality of things, then it's like okay, what world are you living in? Like, (laughs) we need to talk about what's happened. But you also have to think about the fact that a lot of our relationship behavior is based on how our parents acted, the modeling. And then like- True, true. Previous relationships, like some people have zero experience. I mean, another guy that I dated, I haven't brought up yet, but things ended abruptly for us after dating for a few months and I was all upset about it. And I reached out and like really tried to communicate with him to have a deeper conversation and understanding about what was going on. And he said, 
he was going on like a trip or something and he would chat with me about it when he got back. And I really trusted that. And I thought that was a reasonable thing. And then I, I didn't hear from him for like, I think it was almost two months. And then out of nowhere, he submarined, he popped up and he wanted, you remember this, Jason, he wanted to return something that I left at his place. And I was really hurt and pissed. And I wrote him back and I was like, listen, I don't really want that thing back because it reminds me of you. And also, it's really strange that almost two months later, you're reaching out to me as if we never had that conversation about talking about things when you were done with your trip. You know what I mean? But once again, my heart goes out because that specific guy had very little relationship experience because Uh. he expressed to me that you know, he had kind of had like a traumatic childhood or family dynamic or whatever. And so he was super avoidant and scared and just didn't know how to handle these things. And I'm sure for me, having been in many more relationships than him, a lot more dating experience and confidence and in general, just really always working on my communication skills, like in a way, I was much more advanced and comfortable with that than he was. So this compassion I'm talking about is certain people just don't have the same comfort levels and their ability to communicate can be vastly different than yours. And that, you know, wrapping this all up, I think that's a really important lesson in all of this is whether you're, I mean, most of us are in a relationship, either, you know, you might be married, you might be dating somebody, even if you're single you're in a relationship with yourself, you're in a relationship with your family members and your friends and all of these different dynamics with one another. If we can do our best to understand ourselves and and then educate yourself about other people. I mean, this is one of the reasons I love the four tendencies as we've talked about so much is I'm not just interested in what my tendency is. Like I like to understand Jason's tendency and everybody in my life's tendencies because that helps me understand them. Same thing with the five love languages. Like when you understand different languages, tendencies, attachment styles. If you want to get into all these personality tests, that's really useful information because then you can start to understand why somebody behaves in the way that they do. And then it also is helpful to understand their past experiences. And I think we're often very afraid to ask or we don't want to know. We feel like we should just be present, focus on the present moment. And that's really beneficial, but the past does really influence the way that we're acting today. And everybody has different experiences. A lot of people go through all different types of trauma in their lives. So I think ultimately that compassion and not making assumptions about somebody, especially assuming that they have the same worldview as you could really serve you in having better dynamics with all sorts of people in your life. It reminds me of something my mom told me when I was a kid. I think I had just gone through, I say a breakup as a kid. It's all relative, right? It's like one of your first heartbreaks. And I remember my mom telling me that she said, human relationships are the most challenging and interesting thing that you'll ever experience. And I think in some ways, you know, that quote holds true because there are so many layers to who we are as people. And then you think about our history, our conditioning, our programming, our family trauma, our benefits and things we've gotten from our family, our hopes, our dreams, 
think about the complexity of a individual human being. And then that human being tries to create a life and a container of a relationship with another human being with a completely different set of family history and lineage and genetics and trauma and hopes and dreams. It's amazing to me that anybody actually fucking makes it work. That's a miracle, man. We go back to talking about, yeah, Michael, Kevin, your grandparents, your parents, other examples we have. And it's like, holy shit. That's amazing. It's amazing that we find a way. And I don't mean that to be pedantic. Like it really, it blows my mind sometimes with all the complexities and layers of an individual human that we find a way to relate to one another and make it work. It's amazing. It really is miraculous in some ways. Are we going to do the frequently asked queries now? We can. Are you ready for them? Let's do it fast. Let's do lightning. <laughs> lightning round. Okay, but will you give our listener a little backstory on what this segment is? Yes. So Whitney is the queen of analytics and spreadsheets and research. I have never known another human <laughs> quite as deft and skilled in those three areas as her. So one of the reasons why I think this partnership and this business and this podcast goes so well is because I rebel against those things. I prefer to write and uh, focus on the written word portion of things. And uh, Whitney is just an incredible analyzer, researcher, and distiller of information. So these frequently asked queries are Google searches uh, through Google Analytics, where people are looking for subject matter that pertains to the podcast. And boy, oh boy. Well, no, they're not technically looking for our podcast. They're just looking to get their questions answered. They're just looking to get their questions answered. Hopefully, <laughs> we can provide you with some answers. Right. If we understand the question you're asking, because sometimes right. they don't make any sense at all. <laughs> Hence why we do this. Yes. Well, I'm going to, since we're going to do a quicker round today, I'll combine a funny query with an interesting query. Right on. This one is questions to ask a shy girl. <laughs> wow. Maybe the first question is, why are you shy? Maybe bad lead off, <laughs> uncomfortable lead off, because then it puts her on the spot. And then she's feeling more shy because you just asked her why she's shy. Okay. Delete and is this that. Like, That's not a good approach. I want to know is, are you asking like, hey, how do I interact with a shy child? Like, I don't know how to talk to them. Or is it like, I'm interested in this girl who happens to be shy. So what can I ask her that would bring her out of her shell? Yeah, this is an ambiguous question, isn't it? Incredibly ambiguous question. Very much so. I don't know. I feel challenged sometimes, say in a party or a public context, when I am perceiving that someone might be shy or introverted, of how can I approach them without overwhelming them with my extroverted energy. This is actually something that comes up a lot for me, Whitney. So I don't know. Definitely asking them why they're shy. Wouldn't recommend leading off with that. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Hmm. Well, for somebody that tends to be introverted, I personally like it when somebody asks me in-depth question, but without putting me on the spot. In fact, a lot of shy people, it, you know, and shyness and introversion are not necessarily the same thing, but I think sometimes they just want to be in the background and listen. So if you can ask them something and they don't really seem to want to give an answer, like maybe you just talk a little bit and check in with them about it and just notice if they're asking you questions. Because I often would so much rather talk about something else other than myself. 
But if somebody asks me something that's really in depth and pertains to me, or if they like ask me a follow-up question, I tend to really like that because that shows they're interested. And if somebody's willing to have an in-depth conversation about it, then I am much more apt to stay in the conversation. Also, I think you need to read the room, though. That's a big thing because as an introvert, I will give you lots of signals that I'm not interested. You can tell from my body language if I want to talk to you or not, or if I just want to stand there and listen. I'll give you a lot of cues. So if you pay attention to somebody, if they're avoiding eye contact with you, if their arms are folded, they're not leaning in, if they don't really say a lot back to you, maybe they just don't want to talk. And if you're trying to win them over for some reason or another, like just give them a lot of space, I think. And when it comes to kids, if this question was about like, how do you talk to a shy child? Because it can be awkward talking to kids sometimes. I think a lot of kids, you just have to pay attention to them and and notice what they're interested in. And, And once you start them on a subject matter that they care about, then the kids will open up a lot and talk to you. So it's tricky though. Yeah, I think my best piece of advice that seems to work pretty consistently, whether it is a shy child or a lady that I'm interested in communicating with, act goofy. Goofiness is good because I know that kids respond to goofiness and and openness and playfulness. And if I'm also goofy and open and playful and a, a lady responds to that, that's a good sign. So when in doubt, I act goofy. Excellent. All right. You were the right man to ask this question. Okay. One more, and then we're going to give our brand shout outs too, which we do every episode. Let's see here. I thought this one was interesting. I'm curious what you would define this as, Jason. This query was unconditional healing. I've never heard that term in my life. Me neither. I don't know what it even means. What would you think it means? I couldn't venture even to guess. I mean, conditions on healing. What is a condition that one would place on healing? If you do all these things and do it the right way, only then you're going to be healed. I mean, if you think about conditions, I don't know. It's interesting. I looked it it up and it's the name of a, there's a YouTube channel called Unconditional Healing Tarot. And maybe the website is also related to that account. And the website description is pain is inevitable. Suffering is not. Whether you're dealing with an acute or chronic illness, loss of a loved one, job loss or any other. And then it's dot, dot, dot. You have to click to the website to see more here. Oh, it is a different person. This is a guy named Jeff who runs this website, Unconditional Healing. Interesting. It's a little hard to tell what the definition is, but it seems like a very gentle approach to healing. Hmm. Spiritual guidance. Well, I don't know. Unconditional healing. Have to dig in, do some more research. Maybe we'll find find a guest for the podcast through this. It says the approach, so much of our perspective of health is wrapped around a faulty premise. We've been led to believe that healing is equivalent to curing or fixing, but some situations in our lives are so unwieldy and overwhelming that they are unresolvable with our current approach. Interesting. If we ignore aspects of our lives when defining healing, we limit ourselves to a very constrained, conditional notion of health that offers no long-term solace. I think that's a great perspective. I do too. I think that's great. Because I- genuine health and well-being is unconditional, 
omnipresent and inherent to human beings, no matter what circumstances befall us. Well, want to do brand shout outs, right? Brand shout outs. I'm trying to think of who I want to discuss in this pantheon. I'm trying to think of like what lately I've been really excited by. Oh, you know what? I know what I want to give a shout out to. I want to give a shout out to non-dairy milk brand called Three Trees. They make this really incredible pistachio milk. And my favorite in their lineup is a black sesame milk. They actually sent me some bottles to try semi-recently. I First of all... Thanks to me. Yeah, that's true. I that's believe, true. That's true. I, believe that's true. I made that's that true. intro. That's true. Pat, pat in the that's, back. That's true. That's true. Props to Whitney. I really love it because they taste amazing. The label is super clean ingredients, a lot of organic, really, really low glycemic sweetener. And, and it tastes exactly like what it is. It tastes like pistachio milk. It tastes like black sesame milk. I personally love black sesame right now because I'm dealing with some kidney issues. And black sesame is really restorative for the kidneys in traditional Chinese medicine. And also it tastes really good. There's a deep, rich, earthy nuttiness to a black sesame. And you don't really see that that kind of milk all that often. It's definitely not as ubiquitous as certainly almond milk or oat milk or coconut milk right now. So just want to give a shout out to Three Trees for being innovative, for being different, for being clean label and having really awesome out of the box ideas for uh, the non-dairy milk sector. I second that. I also really enjoy Three Trees. Unfortunately, I think all, if not most of their line is almond based and I have an almond sensitivity because even the black sesame I tried recently had almonds in it, which was a bummer. I don't know if they have two different versions, maybe one that doesn't have almonds, but... Mm, I don't think so. I think they're all cut, for lack of a better term. It sounds like drugs. Yeah, it's cut with almond milk, man. It's laced with almonds. But yeah, Yeah. to my knowledge, I think they all are. Yeah. Well, that's fine. It's not going to be for everybody, but I appreciate them even though I I can't drink it regularly. My shout out, I have a a number of companies. I'm the opposite problem as Jason right now because I... Would love to talk about more. So you'll have to stay tuned for another episode if you want to hear some of the other brands that we have each been loving recently. But I want to give a shout out to Foria, who makes, who is, I should say, one of our favorite CBD and just hemp-based brand in general, because I think they still make some THC products. But their CBD line is phenomenal. They partnered with us when we launched the podcast and did a giveaway with us. And when I think about them, I can like, taste their products. They're so distinct. They have really great tonics, wellness tonics, and just wonderful CBD formulations that taste incredible, that are really high quality, very high standards in the way that they produce things. And if you are interested in CBD and you want one of the best options out there, I couldn't recommend Foria enough. We talked about them in a whole episode we did on CBD and some of our other CBD products. So If you are curious about CBD and you have not listened to that episode yet, please go listen to that. You'll learn a lot. And we are continually learning about CBD. It's a bit of a complex topic here. And there's a lot of like greenwashing, CBD washing, health washing, whatever you want to call it. It's it's tough to find a really well-formulated product out there. And Foria is one that I have trusted for many years. I've known of them since 2013, I think. So they're legit and can't recommend them enough. So dear listener, 
We appreciate you getting uncomfortable with us. Whitney, this was a juicy episode. I feel like you shared, especially the old Facebook stalker account. Like you, you went to some <laughs> you went to some good juicy places. So I appreciate yeah. you doing that and opening the conversation for us to, you know, really crack it open, crack a toa. So with that, dear listener, we appreciate you being here. If it's your first time or your hundred and first time, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. If you want to go a step further, we have a Patreon account where we have Many people supporting this podcast, helping us to invest in new equipment, in our editing process, and helping to grow and expand this podcast to reach even more people because we are charting around the world. It's actually very exciting. We get something called Chartable, and we get daily updates. We have been on charts recently in the Saudi Arabia market, in Brazil, in Denmark, and in Ireland. So it's really exciting for us to know that there are listeners all around the world, wherever you are on the planet, if you do want to get a hold of us whether you want to support us on Patreon or send us a direct message, you can find us on all of the social media networks. Our accounts are at Wellevator. Again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, and Twitter. Or you can send us a direct email. It is Whitney and I who check that every single day. And the email address is hello at Wellevator.com. You can also download and access free resources. We have two video trainings, and our brand new ebook that came out very recently called From Chaos to Calm, which is our 12 favorite ways to manage anxiety, stress, depression, and navigating this often crazy chaotic world. So please access that free resource if you haven't done so already and give us some feedback. We always love hearing from you. So until next time, thanks again for being with us and getting uncomfortable here on the podcast and in life in general. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 